Welcome to The Labor Relationship, the podcast focused on the world of work and our place in it. I'm your host, Daniel Powell, and today our guest is Anthony Giles. He has an extensive background in labor policy, from Assistant Deputy Minister in the Labor Program of Employment and Social Development Canada, to currently working as an academic and professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Yeah, happy to have you. Uh, I'm beyond thrilled to have you here to talk about some important concepts surrounding labor policy. And before we start, I wanted to provide an opportunity for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the work that you do and that you've been involved with through the years. Okay, well, um, I guess I'd start by saying I had a split career. Um, I spent the first half of my professional career as a university professor mm-hmm. teaching labor relations, employment relations, and public policy. And then uh, I moved to the federal government um, about 18 years ago or so, and uh, spent some time in the field of international and intergovernmental labor affairs, and then strategic labor policy. And I ended up as an assistant deputy minister in charge of both those areas, plus the federal mediation and conciliation service. Um, I just go back and say, before I started teaching um, university, I did, you know, the usual degree patterns of uh, an undergraduate, a master's degree in public policy, and a PhD in industrial relations. And um, uh, my recollection, you used to work for the ESDC, correct? Yeah, I was uh, uh, in the what's called the Labor Program of Employment mm-hmm. Social Development Canada. Yeah. Okay. Well, wealth of knowledge, and I'm very excited that we can uh, apply some of that right now. Um, So my first question for you, uh, labor policy, it's a very complex subject. And I think that it would be very useful for us to determine what policy is and what makes labor policy uh, important. Okay. Well, um, what policy is, is is very simple. It's what governments do. Uh, And People often think of policy as something that is uh, has to end up in legislation or regulation, something like that, and that's very often the case. Um, but government policy can take other forms, like um, its ability to spend, for example, uh, and its ability to meet with um, stakeholders, citizens, try and persuade them to follow a particular course of action, for example, without actually requiring them. So policy is very, very wide as a general term. And I guess the other thing I would say, and this is something people don't often think about, um, policy is something sometimes what government doesn't do. If government makes a conscious decision not to do something that it's being urged to do or suggested to do, that too is a policy decision. And so You shouldn't think only of actual actions, but rather action and inaction. Right. And when you talk about government, I think it's really important to kind of think about how government works to start affecting this meaningful change. Uh, So with that in mind, can you kind of go into uh, how the different layers of government work at a federal or provincial or municipal level and how they interact with each other? Sure. Um, So the Canadian Constitution divides jurisdiction between the federal government and the provinces and territories and assigns each of them certain powers uh, and certain responsibility for certain sectors of the economy. Okay, And 
so there's not a hierarchical relationship between the federal government and the provinces. They're treated equally in the constitution. So for example, in the field of labor policy, the federal government is responsible for industries like airlines, uh, trains, trains that cross borders, uh, any form of transportation that crosses provincial borders or international borders. It's responsible for ports, it's responsible for telecommunications industries, so cable companies, phone companies, and so on. It's responsible for the banking system. Those are all written in the Constitution as being the federal government. The provinces and territories are responsible for everything else. So manufacturing, service sector, distribution, local transport that doesn't go across borders, and so on. And so... The federal government has a set of labor laws and each province and territory has a set of labor laws and there's no necessary relationship between them. I'll give you a quick example of how it can get complicated sometimes. Where I live in the Ottawa Gatineau area, the bus service, the urban transit service in Ottawa and the urban transit service in Gatineau, they both cross the Ottawa River to the other side on a regularly scheduled basis. Right. So they have been determined to fall under federal jurisdiction because they're interprovincial. But if you go to Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver and look at uh, how they're urban transportation system is regulated from the point of view of labor policy, it's entirely provincial. The federal government has nothing to do with it. Okay. So it can get a little complicated from time to time, but um, basically you just have to think in terms of two equally uh, important orders of government. Now, just on municipalities, municipalities are created by provinces and territories. So they can come up with, their own municipal policies in some areas, but they don't create their own legislation the way the province does. So municipal workers fall under provincial um, regulation. So if you're, if you're a municipal worker in Fredericton, New Brunswick, then it's the New Brunswick labor laws that apply to you. Some municipalities have come up with policies that don't conflict with the provincial labor policy, and they're able to do that. The city of Toronto, for example, has what's called a fair wages policy, where it insists that suppliers and contractors um, that they hire uh, pay their employees a certain level of wages that are considered fair. Right. So keeping in mind that there's these different levels of government and mm -hmm. all they're all making their own different policies, mm -hmm. how is labor labor policy made? So we often hear about bills in the news, but like, mm -hmm. what is a bill and how does a bill come into law? Okay, so from the point of view of those policies that require legislation, um, a bill gets uh, formally speaking, um, the government proposes a bill, or it could be a private member puts forward his or her own suggestion for a bill, but normally it would be the government putting it forward. Right. What they do is they present it in Parliament, and then there is a period at the federal level anyway, it varies sometimes in some of the provinces, where the bill is studied by a parliamentary committee on which sits 
members of each of the parties represented in Parliament or the legislature. They vote on the bill and they bring it back or send it back to the whole Parliament for a final approval. And uh, those are called readings. So um, first reading is when it's tabled. Second reading, it then goes to committee, comes back to Parliament. It's read a third time and a vote is taken. And if there's majority support for it in the federal system, it's then sent to the Senate. And the Senate goes through exactly the same process. And assuming that they approve it, it then goes to the governor general for what's called royal assent. And then the bill becomes law. Now, I think it's important to add that in the field of labor and many other uh, fields as well, some bills don't come into effect as soon as the governor general signs it. The bill itself has usually a provision that says it comes into effect when the governor general signs it, or six months later, or when the government decides it's going to come into effect. And the reason for that is sometimes bills require more detailed regulations that have to be developed to make the bill work in practical right. terms, like basic rules to follow. And so that can take some time. And so um, until those regulations are done, a bill couldn't come into force. Interesting. Yeah. So let's assume that there's this, um, let's assume there's a bill that's been proposed, yeah. right? With all of this, uh, these levels, there has to be mm -hmm. some influence to this bill. So what influences a bill that's being proposed and these policies that are being created? Like what are the kinds of influences that shape the decisions within mm -hmm. all these levels? Um, maybe you could walk us through a, a real example on that. Okay. Um, so the influences that shape the bill start well before the bill is even written uh, by experts in the field right. of how to write legislation and presented to parliament. The, the origins of a bill can, can be many uh, possibilities. Uh, I'll take a common one. Uh, a party runs in an election, it publishes a platform, which is a list of promises. So in that list of promises, um, there may be some promises that require legislation, okay? And so uh, when the government, when that party is elected to government, the minister responsible for the area will sit down with the public service and say, well, okay, we promised this, how do we do it, okay? There can be other sources as well uh, not, not, not just electoral promises, an issue can arise during the term of a government. And I'll give you, a, you asked for a real example. Here's one. So back in 2016, early 2016, shortly after the um, liberal government at the federal level was elected, the Trudeau government, um, a, um, a, a, a motion was made in Parliament by a member of the NDP, I think it was, asking if um, there was support to set up a special committee to look at the question of pay equity. Pay equity is uh, the area um, of policy that says that women should be paid equal uh, pay for work of equal value. Okay, The right had existed for 30 years. Uh, but the member in question 
was pressing for the government to look at changing the way it did pay equity to make it proactive. So instead of having to make a complaint that you weren't being paid equally or fairly, um, mm-hmm. that all employers were required to proactively sit down, analyze their salary patterns, their employment patterns, and where there was discrimination corrected. So that parliamentary committee was struck. It invited witnesses from, you know, the private sector. I was a witness at one one of the hearings as well to give the government's point of view. Um, and in the end, the committee made a recommendation to the government that it, yes, that it should develop proactive pay equity legislation. Now, the influences here weren't just what the committee did, because there had been a longstanding debate in Canada about pay equity. So there were different interest groups who were for or against um, doing proactive pay equity. So the government had to consider that as well. And it had to consider as well the costs uh, involved in introducing proactive pay equity, the costs for itself, and the costs for private sector employers. In the end, it weighed all of those factors and came to the conclusion that, yes, it would do uh, introduce legislation for proactive pay equity. And so that process took from 2016, when the special committee was created, all the way till the late uh, autumn of 2018, before the legislation was actually designed, um, written, got approval of the federal cabinet and was introduced in parliament long time yeah sometimes the system moves more quickly um, but it's not unusual for an idea to have to go through many stages before it actually materializes in an actual piece of legislation well i'd love to move on to maybe some of the controversies in labor policy in recent Canadian history. So uh, what have been some of the most contentious ones? So in recent years, I would say that uh, one of the most contentious ones is the debate um, in Canada, in the labor relations community, between those who favor what's called card check certification and those who favor majority vote certification. So when a union uh, goes to a labor board to request that it be certified as the bargaining agent for a group of employees, there are two ways to test whether the union actually has the support, the majority support of the employees. The traditional method is for the union to present signed cards on the part of those employees who said, yes, I would like the union to represent me and they pay a small amount of money to indicate that they're serious, could be $5, something like that. Um, And so the board then gets the list of employees from the employer and counts the number of cards and decides, is it a majority in support? And if it is, it can then just certify the union and say, you're certified, you're the bargaining representative, you can begin negotiating with the employee. The other method is to say, no, no, Uh, what needs to happen is employees need to have a secret ballot to be able to test their true desires. Okay, so there's been a debate going on for 
15 years in the country about which of these is the preferred uh, route or system. And there's been a gradual move away from card check certification toward secret balloting as the method. Um, I think slightly more than half of the provinces and territories now require secret ballots. Uh, there have been in a number of provinces and at the federal level, some back and forth because the political parties disagree on this as well. So for example, uh, at the federal level in 2000 and oh, I'll say 13 around there, um, there was a bill, a private member's bill that was passed that, that moved the federal system away from card check certification to secret balloting. When the Liberals were elected in 2015, one of the very first things they did was introduce legislation to change it back. And there's been a couple of provincial examples as well of, of this back and forth. So that's why I say it's still a live issue because the, there is an ongoing kind of disagreement about which is the best method. So that's one. A second one I would say is perennial and it's um, not just recent, it's, it's as old as labor relations itself. And that is what do you do about strikes or lockouts that affect the public, that affect the economy, that affect delivery of essential services and so on. There too, there are two very different views. There's one view that says that anything that has a significant effect, um, like a strike in a school system, for example, um, or a strike in a port that you know stops the, the flow of goods into the country or out of the country, um, the government should intervene and stop it and impose mandatory arbitration. Right. There's another view that says, no, no, there may be some cases where there's a real serious impact to the health and safety of the population. And in that case, it might be justified for the government to step in and say, end of bargaining over to arbitration. But that by expanding it to anything that creates any kind of disturbance, it empties the collective bargaining system of its internal logic. Um, because the internal logic of collective bargaining is two parties each wield as much influence as they can to get to a result. Third one, very quickly, Daniel, unless you think I'm taking up too much time. Oh, go for it, yeah. Is much more modern in one way, and that's how labor policy and labor laws should treat gig workers, okay? Platform. Very current issue right now, yeah. <laughs> so the, the traditional way of thinking or the recent way of thinking about it is like platform workers, right? Uber drivers, whatever. Um, the com most of the companies that run these kind of platforms have a business model that treats those workers as independent contractors. So they're not employees. The employer isn't responsible for doesn't have to follow minimum wage laws, doesn't have to follow health and safety laws, doesn't have to follow uh, hours of work laws and so on because they're independent contractors, they're not employees. So there's a growing feeling that this is um, uh, wrong, that it's a veil, that these really are employees, albeit usually part-time and casual, but still, they don't control what they do the way a traditional independent contractor would. Um, they don't con they, they're, they're controlled by algorithms that the companies use 
to manage ride service or food delivery or whatever it is. So there's a debate now about how best to treat these workers. Should they be treated as full employees? Should they be left alone as independent contractors? Or should there be some sort of middle ground created? There's a category in labor law called dependent contractors who are formally independent, but because they work consistently for one particular firm, they're dependent on that firm. So the thinking is they ought to receive, uh, if not every single protection available in labor law than most of them, okay? So there's a debate going on um, in a number of provinces and at the federal level about whether to do this or not. And uh, so that's gonna be an interesting development, not just in Canada, but it's happening around the world. Um, the European Union, for example, has recently introduced rules that say, no, no, you have to treat these people as employees. California tried to do the same thing, but um, the, uh, the platform companies funded a massive election campaign to defeat it. Um, and so that bill uh, that existed in California no longer uh, has effect. So those are three that I think are, you know, shaping the debate and conversation over labor policy these days. I want to springboard off of that. Um, when we think about these issues, sometimes it, it requires some form of expediency to get to a final decision to ensure that we're, you know, respecting the rights of, of all humans. And I want to get your opinion on, do you think that policy creation is fast enough? Should it be faster? Is it at the right pace? What's your opinion on this? <laughs> well, I, I mean, Policy can evolve very, very quickly in the if the circumstances demand it. And I'll give right. you a recent example that everyone will remember. And that is at the beginning of the pandemic, mm -hmm. as unemployment soared, the federal government looked at its, uh, its employment uh, insurance system and saw that it was just not able to um, handle the workload and not able to pay everyone who needed money because of the rules of employment insurance. So within a matter of a couple of weeks, they completely changed the rules and they completely changed the actual system of applying for and receiving it so that it happened really quickly instead of the usual wait. That was revolutionary in terms of the approach, because the approach had been like 60 years old or something like that, and always done the same way. But within a matter of a couple of weeks, because of the special circumstances, the whole system was changed. Now that has triggered a debate about what employment insurance should look like in the future, not just for the pandemic period, but more generally, um, what kind of a system do we really need? So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is why in so many cases is movement slow in developing policy and bringing it forward as legislation or some other method. Well, in the field of labor policy, probably one of the most important factors is the 
competing interests of workers and their unions, if they have unions, versus employers. And so traditionally labor policy in Canada, although there are some exceptions, tries to find some sort of a balance between those two interests. And that can take considerable amount of time. There have been cases um, in the area of health and safety regulations, for example, where the government has wanted there to be a joint agreement between employers and unions on a change in regulations. The long, slow process of moving the parties to a consensus or as close to a consensus as the government can get them can sometimes take several years on a technical issue. Um, so that's one barrier or, or one factor for slow policy development. Um, another is simply the, the workload of a government. <laughs> um, when you think of the legislative agenda of any government, provincial, federal, whatever, they want to do many, many, many things. And so they have to prioritize because there's only a limited amount of time that parliament or a legislature is sitting and able to deal with legislation. So there have to be priorities. And sometimes ideas that are good ideas, they've got support from stakeholders, the public would probably like it, uh, don't get moved forward because there are other pressing legislative priorities. So that's a, a second major reason. Um, and I guess I would stop there and say those are probably the largest impediments to speedy policy making. I would also caution you, though, that speed isn't the only thing. Like policy that is going to be manifested in legislation and in regulations has to be very carefully thought out. Um, there have to be consultations with the people it's going to affect to make sure that you don't inadvertently put something dumb in a piece of legislation and then you have to fix it later, right? It's a problem. It, it happens. It does happen. There was a piece of federal legislation a few years ago that um, created quite a few headaches for a number of industries because it, it imposed new rules on how long workers needed to be informed about a shift change, uh, rest periods, and so on which worked in some environments perfectly well, but in some industries that operate 24-7 and have difficult um, scheduling challenges, it would have been um, almost impossible to respect those rules. So they had to negotiate special arrangements for different sectors um, because of that oversight, I'll, I'll call it. Well, I wanted to wrap up this because we're getting to the end of the show. I wanted to wrap up the session by briefly touching on any issues. And I guess that this is kind of one of them that's maybe mm -hmm. working too fast. Um, but in your experience, where do we see the most issues, the most roadblocks in creating and implementing keyword effective labor policy? So <laughs> it depends what you mean by effective, Daniel. <laughs> um, and th that's a very subjective 
um, idea. Like one person sees a roadblock, the other person sees a safety measure, right? Right. So um, whether it's a question of it taking time, whether it's a question of um, getting traction behind an idea, you're not in the field of labor policy, very often going to find 100% of all employers and unions who are in agreement with this, right? Right. Very rare. I don't think that's ever happened. Okay. Well, (laughs) um, let's put it this way. There are um, areas where there have been agreement. and, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the consultation process is important in the area of labor relations to, um, if not bring people to an exact consensus, to at least allow the government to find, you know, the middle way between the two opposing views. And that can sometimes take time. But let me try and answer the question in a different way. What I think is one of the real challenges of labor policy and possibly other areas of policy as well is the lack of long-term forward-looking thinking behind policy. Too often, um, partly because governments have a short life span, so they tend to think in terms of what they can do before the next election, partly just human nature, we tend to look at what's familiar instead of forcing ourselves outside the box to think about like what, what's the future of work going to look like and how should we be preparing for that and so I think one of the real challenges and I don't have an easy solution for it um, is to create a capacity if you will for longer term forecasting and thinking about the area of labor policy now academics have taken up that challenge and have written about the future of labor policy. Um, There is a unit in the federal government, the job of which is entirely thinking, not just about labor policy, policy in general, about what the future um, holds. It's called Horizons. Uh, And I would encourage people to check their website because they have uh, a number of interesting resources on what the future of work it might look like and what that might um, imply for future policy challenges. And I guess what I'd say is we need more of that kind of stuff. More forward thinking. Yep. Well, we're reaching the end of the show, Tony. Um, Are there any other thoughts you want to provide? Anything that you think we missed during the session? Oh, we probably missed enough for me to go another hour and a half. But I, <laughs> I'll need another couple episodes for you. <laughs> I, I think we hit the, the main points, Daniel, and I'd be happy to come back uh, for another uh, session with you on something more Absolutely. specific that we can get into more detail on. I appreciate today was kind of like an overview, um, but I'd be happy to come back and talk about particular areas of policy if you want me to. I'll hold you to that. Well, Anthony Giles, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. And uh, I only hope we hear from you uh, in the coming episodes. It's been a pleasure for me too. This has been The Labor Relationship. Have a topic you want to explore? Or maybe you want to participate in the show? Send us an email at thelaborrelationship at gmail.com.